Well, good morning. If you will open your Bibles to James chapter 5, verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one out of the baskets. Um, James chapter 1 is marked with a post-it note, so that will get you close. And then just flip a couple pages and you'll be at James chapter 5. But this is our last Sunday in the book of James. It's been a good series. It's been a hard series. Um, but it ends well, and I'm excited to cover this last part. Um, if, if you're new, welcome. We're glad to have you here with us. If you've been coming frequently over the summer, by now you probably know James is a letter written to early Christians to teach them how to lead themselves well during hard times. And um, this letter, scholars believe, um, it was written just about 15 years after Jesus rose from the dead. So it's the earliest letter in your New Testament Bibles. And um, it was written to his very first followers. And so I wanted to kind of describe them for you because Jesus' his early followers were... He attracted all kinds of different people. And I thought if I described them to you, then you would be able to kind of envision who this letter was written to and how it applies to people today. So um, Jesus, many of you know, he had a close group of 12 followers. Within that circle, his three closest friends were Peter, James, and John. They were... Um, Blue-collar workers who owned a small family business, a fishing business. And Peter, he was married, and his aging mother-in-law lived with them. They cared for her. Matthew was another close friend. He was a government official working in a corrupt government. The Bible never says Matthew was corrupt. He was probably, you know, working within the system to try to help reform the system. Um... But religious conservatives really doubted Matthew's dedication to God um, because Matthew had no problem working with and befriending secular people. He was known for hosting dinner parties with them and all this kind of stuff. And um, he deeply loved God and followed Jesus. And he wrote the first, well, not the first, but the first biography of Jesus that's in the New Testament, the book of Matthew that we studied last year. Um, the Pharisees, who didn't like Matthew, as I mentioned last week, um, they were very conservative. You know, they tended to live in more suburban or rural places. They were always at their local church, um, which they called synagogues. Um, they, were, they were usually middle-class people. Um, some were wealthy. Um, but they were Bible teachers and, and scholars and things like that. Um, their fundamental belief, and they got this belief from the Bible was if everyone would just obey God, then God would bless their nation. And so they diligently studied the scriptures so they could obey God, and they also added other rules on top of the scriptures to make sure they were applying the scriptures in the right ways and all these things. And um, they tended to get very annoyed with other people who did not obey God as well as they did. You know, because if your fundamental belief is if everyone would just obey God, things would be good. Then whenever something goes bad, who do you blame? You know, and that's what they did. Like, you know, famine, pandemic, war, 
economic troubles. It's like, oh, it's those sinners over there. And so they would get very annoyed with other people. And they read in Scripture how God was going to send a Savior, a leader, to save them. And they assumed this Savior would be a political leader who would reclaim their nation for God by getting rid of the sinners, especially the foreigners, and, um, you know, getting rid of the liberal elite in the capital city. That's what they thought. And um, Jesus, he said to them, we read the scripture last week. He said, you know, you guys diligently study the scriptures. But the love of God is not in your hearts. That's what he told them. Because the Bible, you know, it does say if people obey God, God will bless us and God will bless our nation. It says that. The problem is the Bible also teaches that all of us sin. Like, and all of us are hard-hearted. And that all people, therefore, need a Savior. And so God's Savior, the leader that he sends, comes not to get rid of the sinners, because then he'd have to get rid of all of us. That Savior, that leader, comes to heal people. And transform their hearts. And would transform anyone's heart who was humble enough to admit they needed it. And the Pharisees, when Jesus told them they were sinners, they were like just deeply offended. Because they took pride in how well they obeyed the rules. But some of them, they were willing to humble themselves and follow Jesus. Some of the Pharisees did. Nicodemus is one. He let Jesus challenge his deeply entrenched interpretation of the Bible. He had a late night heart to heart with Jesus over it. And he came to understand the true heart of God, which is for all people. It was to Nicodemus that Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's what Nicodemus came to understand. Another Pharisee who followed Jesus um, was Paul, originally a man who had, like, no love in his heart. He was very harsh. Um, and he would um, persecute people, um, people who didn't follow all the rules or were, like, Jews in name only. He would get them thrown in prison and things like that. But when he met Jesus, he was changed. And he went from being one of the most judgmental and harshest people in Scripture to being the person who did the most to bring people of all cultures and all ethnicities to Jesus Christ. He, like, traveled the known world and risked his life to tell people about Jesus. On the opposite side of the political spectrum from the Pharisees were the Sadducees. Now, they were those liberal elites that lived in the capital city of Jerusalem. They were wealthy. They received the best Greco-Roman education. So think of like Ivy Leaguers today. They viewed themselves as being very devoted to God and religious. They always worshipped in the temple at Jerusalem, which was like the the biggest, most ornate and, you know, most grand church in the whole nation. So think of like um, the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C., where all of the political people and scholars all meet and worship together. That was where they would worship God, and they were very dedicated to it. 
they um, did not believe all of the Bible was scripture, just some parts of it they viewed as being from God. Um, they did not believe in a lot of supernatural things. They believed in God, but not like angels or demons or the resurrection of the dead. And they also wanted God to bless their nation, but they believed God would bless their nation while they worked with foreign governments. And Jesus saved his harshest criticism for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, who he lumped together, which they must have hated. Because in their opinion, they were like complete opposites. But Jesus repeatedly lumped them together. Um, And we don't know for sure if any Sadducees became followers of Jesus, but there's two disciples, the Bible lists, that meet the description of Sadducees. One is Joseph of Arimathea. The Bible describes him as being very wealthy. He was a politician of um, the Jewish ruling council. He was extremely well-connected, and he owned property in Jerusalem. Not just anyone could pull off a meeting with the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. But Joseph of Arimathea could. So he was likely a Sadducee. And he went to Pontius Pilate and asked for Jesus' body, which was a huge risk. I mean, he is risking his social status. He's risking maybe even his freedom because he's identifying himself to the Roman governor as a follower of someone who was just executed for treason. And in one of what I think is one of the most touching scenes in the New Testament, you have Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. These two wealthy men who, I mean, let's be honest, they do not get their hands dirty for a living, right? They don't do grunt labor. They are well-dressed, well-respected politicians and leaders in their community from probably opposite ends of the political spectrum. But they come together and humbly just take that bruised and bloodied and beaten body of Jesus Christ and they wash him and cleanse him and wrap him and they just lovingly place him in the tomb. Luke chapter 8 tells us that Joanna was a disciple of Jesus. Her husband was um, the manager of King Herod's palace. That's quite a job. Um, so Joanna, obviously she lived in luxury, right? She's very wealthy. King Herod um, was politically aligned with the Sadducees. So it's likely she and her husband were Sadducees, or at least ran in those, those circles. And she was deeply devoted to Jesus and one of the main donors and funders of his ministry. Martha, on the other hand, was a devoted follower who firmly believed a woman's place was in the kitchen and being a homemaker. Her sister, Mary, her younger sister, preferred to um, push against stereotypical gender roles and wanted to be educated alongside men. And there were times that Jesus both affirmed them in their faith and for making wise decisions, there were times that Jesus would both challenge them and tell them that they were wrong. Mary of Magdalene had a history of mental illness. Um, Just to be clear, the, the Bible says she was possessed by seven demons. Now, not all mental illness is caused by demons. I do not want you to hear me say that. 
Um, There are many different things that can cause mental illness. But for Mary, it was demons. And Jesus casts out her demons. He heals her. She becomes a devoted follower. And after Jesus dies and he resurrects to life, the first person he appears to is Mary Magdalene. And he sends her, the very first one, to tell the good news that he is alive. And this just astounds me because, I mean, obviously I'm not Jesus. I don't think like Jesus. But if I was Jesus and I was going to send somebody with the message, hey, I just saw this dead person alive and walking around. If, if you had to entrust someone with that message, would you entrust a person who had a well-known history of mental illness? I mean, it's a, a message that inherently sounds crazy, right? And yet Jesus did. He absolutely did. He chose Mary first and he trusted Mary first with the most important message. John the Baptist I don't know. Okay, in modern day, John the Baptist would probably be living off the grid. I don't know if he would be a prepper or not, but he would be, um, he would be living in the wilderness, no modern luxuries, eating only all organic food he could gather for himself. Um, he, he did believe the end of the world as, as we know is coming, not the total end, but the end as we know it was coming. He was very vocal and bold and courageous about saying that. Um, he was deeply devoted to God, knew the scriptures, would do anything for Jesus. He was not crazy, not at all. Um, he, he did go through kind of a crisis of faith when Jesus brought change, but not quite the change he thought he would. Um, but he, John was wonderful, and he is highly honored in Scripture, and Jesus deeply loved him. One of Jesus' 12 closest friends was um, Simon the Zealot, who was the Zealot. Um, the Zealots were a right-wing militia. Uh, in modern day terms, like the, probably the closest group you would know of to this would be the Proud Boys. Not exactly like them, but, I mean, it was that kind of thing. They were nationalists. They, um, trained themselves in mil- military maneuvers. And they believed it was okay to use violence to achieve God's political purposes. Or what they thought were God's political purposes. They were known for, um, going in crowds, crowds that might have been gathering for whatever reason, and um, using the cover of crowds to carry out violence against political opponents, like stabbing people and then disappearing into the crowd and stuff like that. The point is, all these people Jesus loved, all these people Jesus welcomed, all these people Jesus transformed, he challenged their, ide- their ideologies. He challenged their worldviews. And he transformed their lives. And then all these people went and converted their friends to following Jesus too. And then Jesus left. And they had to figure out how to be a church together. 
Do you see any potential problems there? Yeah. Thankfully, Jesus, he left them with the Holy Spirit, which is a huge gift. The Spirit of God that does transform our hearts. But it is, it's a huge shift to going from following God who you can physically see and hear like they could Jesus to learning to listen to the still small voice of God living inside of us. That's a big shift. And then they started to become persecuted and so they're also under pressure. And that's when James steps in and he writes this letter about how to lead themselves well during the hard times. So they don't just survive, but they persevere. They, they like grow stronger and wiser. And this is the theme verse of James chapter one. He says, Oh, we're going to go with chapter verse six if we can. Can you back up two? One more? Maybe not. That's okay. Um, it says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask of God who gives generously to all without finding fault. That's the theme of the book of James. But then he goes on, as many of you know, and he says, but you have to believe and not doubt. And you have to listen to the Lord's word and be slow to speak, be slow to become angry. And um, you guys can take that down, please. (laughs) Thank you. Um, And you can understand how this would be a problem. Because all of these people, they interpreted scripture differently. They had different favorite verses and other verses that they would kind of disregard. They all had kind of this different lens to interpret scripture through. They all had different patterns of behavior that they would fall back on when things got tough. And chapters two through four and a half, James calls those things out. You know, like those who would turn to material things for comfort. And those who would turn to their networks of wealthy friends to bail them out. That's in chapter 2. And those who would disregard the poor because they viewed poor people as a threat to their resources. Um, that's also in chapter 2. In chapter 3, he calls them all out for grumbling and complaining against one another. <laughs> um, and for thinking they could do a better job if they were just in charge. Um, in chapter 4, he calls out people for making plans without even trying to figure out what God's will is. And then in the last half of chapter 5, James just paints this radically different picture of what they can do instead, of what we should do instead. And it's it's just encouraging and hopeful. And so that's what we're going to read right now. It's very simple, actually. James chapter 5, verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah, he was a human being just like any one of us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. 
And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed. And the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone brings that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. It's just this beautiful and rather simple picture of Christians coming together. Instead of grumbling and complaining about one another, making up their own plans of what they think is best, it's all these different people coming together and doing very simple things that unlock the power of God. Things that are so simple that, from a human perspective, we wouldn't think it would accomplish much, like anointing people with oil, right? And you can see James is trying to convince them of the power of these simple things. He says, even, you know, you think it's not going to do anything when you pray. Elijah was a person just like us. And look what God did. These are simple things that unlock the power of God for him to do what we cannot. I think it's worth noting that at this time, the church, they just consisted of these little bands of Christ followers in different cities. They didn't have public buildings to worship in. So they just met in each other's homes. And that's kind of what James is describing. Just small groups of believers coming together to pray and encourage one another and, and try to discern what the Lord's will is together. Sing together, confess your sins to one another. To work out their faith together and keep each other from wandering away from the truth. Um, for our church, and as I look at this list of things that James says to do, I think, well, it's the singing, we're good at the singing. That comes easy to us, right? Um, as a large group, we diligently study the Word of God. Um, and last year, we really worked on learning prayers, just these simple one-sentence prayers. And many of you committed to praying of one of those prayers that are based on scripture. They're on the paintings in our lobby. And many of you like signed one of those painting frames to pledge to pray that prayer every day for yourself and your family and our church. And I just want to thank you for that because we need those prayers. Um, I sent, I hope you guys, those of you who made the commitment got little stickers. And I hope you put those little stickers of your prayer in some place. It will remind you to pray it every day. Because people are desperate for the kind of change that only God can bring. And the only way to get that kind of change is to repeatedly ask God for it. And so we need to keep praying. But not just praying as individuals, we also need to be praying together in groups. And that's why we're starting the prayer meeting on Thursday. We're starting other groups as well. Um, we need to be in groups where we can be real with each other about what's going on in our lives. Um, to pray and discern what God, how God's word applies. James talks about confessing our sins to one another. Which is not an easy thing to do. Let's just be real. That's not easy. But it's deeply healing and transformative. 
In verse 16, he says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray to, for each other so that you may be healed. Um, we rarely practice confession. One, just because we're proud, you know. And confession takes humility. But two, because I think many of us, we just don't really know how. Um, in the Catholic Church, confession is practiced where people will go to the priest, you know, one-on-one and confess their sins. And that is good. It's certainly better than nothing. Um, and we've offered, and we do offer that kind of confession here where you can meet Pastor Eric or I back at the cross at the end of a worship service. Um, but I don't think that's really what Scripture describes. Not that it's wrong, but it's not exactly what's described here. James says, therefore, y'all confess your sins one to another. Um, It does not say one to an elder of the church. It says that about being anointed with oil for healing. It says, go and call the elders of the church to pray over you for healing. It doesn't say that about confession of sins. It says about one to another. It doesn't say one to the whole church. (laughs) It says like one to another, like it's this... Just two people or a small group of people who back and forth are confessing their sins and praying for one another. The scripture here, there's no implication that um, people are to be divided into two groups. One who are the sinners who need to confess and the other the righteous person who needs to, you know, listen and say, you are forgiven. Um, The implication is we're all sinners and we all need to be confessing. So we all need a safe place to do this. Um, And Christians throughout history have practiced confession in small groups. They're often called accountability groups. I was in my first accountability group in college with just three other young ladies. It did not go well because we had no clue what we were doing. This is um, what we thought we would do. We thought, well, um, we know we need to confess our sins, and we want to obey God, so we'll just make a list of the things we should do and the things we should not do and ask ourselves every week if we've done those things. So the list of things should do was like, oh, we should pray every day and read your Bible every day and share your faith with people and be kind, you know, all those kind of things. And the should not do list was things like, you know, don't drink and don't lust and don't be envious of others, things like that, you know. And every week we would come and go through the list, and every week we would all fail on multiple levels, you know. And um, so all this group really did was every week confirm that we were failures. And um, we had no idea how to get better. And um, eventually, I mean, people, like, would stop coming or um, sometimes even lie because we just got tired of being like, yep, I failed, yep, I failed, you know. And um, if you're coming to your accountability group lying, that that's like, that's really bad. So eventually we just disbanded. Um, but through the years, as I studied more about how Christians would practice this through history, I learned um, how to practice accountability and confession in healthy ways. And, and one of the things I've... Um, I first learned is that God, he gently leads us. 
And there's usually just one thing at a time that he's trying to draw our attention to. God does not come at us with this laundry list of things that we need to change and get our act together about. You know, there's usually just one thing that he's speaking to us about one change. And the other thing I learned is that all of our journeys are unique. And so what God is talking to me about in my life, it will probably be something entirely different that he's talking to you about. And so now when I practice accountability, um, I do it with two to three other women, so there's never more than four of us. And um, when we meet, well, first of all, we commit to not judging each other, to keeping everything confidential, and to praying and supporting one another. And then when we meet, everybody will give kind of a quick update, but it will be one main person's turn to share. Okay, in different weeks we'll rotate whose turn it is to share. But the very first um, question we'll ask is, what is the one thing that God is speaking to you about? That What is the one thing that you feel like God keeps drawing your attention to? Or what is the one thing that if change would really make a big difference? And together, we just try to prayerfully discern what that one thing is. We don't tell the person. We just ask questions and listen well and pray with them. And then it's like, okay, well, that's the one thing. So... What are the obstacles that keep tripping you up? Why do you keep getting stuck? And we just brainstorm and list those obstacles. And then the next question is, all right, well, what are your options? What could you do instead? What could you do that's differently, different? And we will pray about that. And um, sometimes they know right away, sometimes they have ideas, sometimes they're stuck and they just don't have any ideas. And, and so other people in the group will say, well, you know, once I struggled with that and that's what helped, this is what helped me, or my brother went through something like that and this is what helped him. And we never tell the person what to do, but you just share ideas. And then it's like, okay. We've brainstormed what you could do differently. What are you actually going to do? And they choose. You know, all right, this is this is what I think God is leading me to do. And then the last question is, when are you going to do it? That's the accountability part. <laughs> like you actually have to put a date and time out. Like when is it? When is this going to happen? And um, and then we will just pray. That God will empower us to, to do these things and um, thank him. And then the next time we come back together, everybody kind of gives their little update on the one thing that they were supposed to work on. And it's a different person's chance to share and work through the circle. And, and it works. And it's deeply transformative. And, and every time I do this, I leave feeling better. Because it's empowering. Like, I have people who listen to my struggles, whatever it could be. Sometimes the one thing is a sin issue. Sometimes it's just like, I need to take better care of my body. Or I think I need to make a career change. Or I mean, it could be anything that God's trying to call your attention to. Um, 
But it's empowering because you actually leave with a plan. And it's not just a plan I came up with on my own, but it's a plan that I discerned the will of God with other believers with. Does that make sense? Yeah. We need accountability groups like that. We need Bible study groups where we open up and read God's word together and try to figure out how it applies to us. Um, We need prayer groups. Our spiritual journey is not meant to be, I go listen to a preacher and then figure it out on my own. That's not what is modeled in scripture for us. Our spiritual journey is meant to be shared with a small group of others, just like Jesus did with his disciples. Um, For those of us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, you know, we actually have to live like he lived if we want to follow him and be like him. And so when we look at the things that Jesus did, um, one, he, he studied and knew the scriptures and he lived by them and applied them. We also know that he frequently took time out to go and pray by himself. He also journeyed with this small band of friends that he shared his life with and they would discuss scripture together, they would pray together, they would live, you know, it was a journey together. Now Jesus, he also worshipped in big gatherings like this too. He was also dedicated to that. But instrumental in his life and persevering through his life on this earth was that he had this small group of 12 friends that he lived out his faith with. And within that group, there was even a smaller group of three, Peter, James, and John, who he shared with even on a more personal level. And they they had lots of interesting conversations, like some of the conversations he had with Peter. Um, and even James and John, he would call them out. And I think if we want to be like Jesus and persevere through this life, And not do the kinds of things Jesus did. We're just mistaken. If we want to be like Jesus, we have to go about living out our faith in the same manner that he did. And so that's why this year, you know, we're focused on learning God's word. We're using the story as a resource. I'm encouraging you to read at home God's word. But that's why we're also starting groups. And in your bulletins, there's a list of all different kinds of groups in here. Many of them are going to be reading the story and discussing it. Um, there's a ladies group that meets to discuss my sermons, <laughs> which I think is great. Um, we have some prayer groups. Um, there's obviously Thursdays at 10.15. I know that doesn't work for all of you, but for many of you it will. We'd love to have you come here and pray with us. Um, right now, we don't have anybody actively practicing this, but if this is something that's interested interests you, I would love to train some people. Um, train some men so they can have men accountability groups. Train some women so we can have some women accountability groups. Um, but in your bulletins, there's the connect card, the back side. You can check whatever kind of group you're interested in receiving more information about. If you're interested in an accountability group like this, just write it on there. Um, But our spiritual journey, it's meant 
to be shared with others. And, and not just in big groups where we can kind of hide, but in small groups where we can look each other in the eye and be honest about what's going on in our lives and pray for and encourage one another. Just as Jesus did with his disciples and just as James describes for us here to do. I'm just going to end in some prayer. Um, For God to help us do this. Heavenly Father, man, I, I think of, um, a college professor way back who told me, if God can't, or if Satan can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. And, um, We fill our lives with so much busyness that we often don't make space for the real work of spiritual transformation. And we can fill our lives with making so many plans all the time to go do this and that. And James talks about that in chapter 4. And we don't Leave much time for the most transformative things of all. The things that are so simple to do. God, I just pray you'll help us um, make space for what you want to do in our lives. God, I pray you'll just grow in our hearts a desire for your word to read it and to understand it. God, I pray that you will just show us other believers that we can rally together with. Um, because as James say, we are to help one another from wandering from the truth. And I thank you for the people you put in my life that keep me from wandering from the truth too. And I pray for all of us that we would have those kind of people in our lives and be devoted to that kind of small community. God, I pray that we would be humble enough to confess our sins to one another so that we can be healed. I pray that you'll show us the safe people to do that with and teach us how to do that. And God, I pray that we will become deeply convicted that even as Elijah's prayers were powerful and effective, so are ours. And help us become dedicated to praying together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.